0: Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential work of New Testament scholarship. I'm joined today by Dr. Jeremiah Coogan, the Assistant Professor of New Testament at the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University in Berkeley, California. Welcome back, Jeremiah.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me on, Ian. It's good to see you again.
0: I invited Jeremiah on coast to host the episode today because he has just published a brand new monograph with Oxford University Press titled Eusebius the Evangelist, Rewriting the Fourfold Gospel in Late Antiquity. So Jeremiah is one of the premier experts in the world right now on the Eusebian apparatus. And I'm very thankful to have you back uh, recording with us today. But first, let's ask some really basic questions. You've heard of Eusebius before. We've discussed him in our Walter Bauer episode, in our David Bracke episode and elsewhere but jeremiah what do we need to know about eusebius of caesarea
1: eusebius of caesarea was an incredibly influential early christian scholar and eventually bishop eusebius lived and worked in the city of caesarea maritima on the coast of roman palestine in what is today israel and eusebius was a scholar with a prodigious output in a wide range of domains he wrote biblical commentaries he wrote an incredibly influential church history the ecclesiastical history He wrote a biography of the Emperor Constantine, and a wide range of other apologetic and theological treatises. He also created a number of tools for the study of the scriptures. And that's the part of Eusebius's project, his scholarly output, that we're focusing on today.
0: Did you know the New Testament had a prologue? Almost every New Testament manuscript from before the invention of the printing press begins not with the Gospel of Matthew, but with Eusebius' letter to Carpianus, an explanation and introduction to what we're calling today the Eusebian Apparatus. And if you've looked through a Greek New Testament, you've seen the Eusebian Apparatus. So, Jeremiah, basic question, what is the Eusebian sections and canons?
1: That's actually a really fun question to answer, because the Eusebian Apparatus is everywhere, and precisely because it's what we call a paratext something that goes alongside a text, something that helps the reader to find their way through a text. It's one of those things we almost don't notice, even though it's quite frequently there. The Eusebian apparatus is a system of gospel cross-references, a system of section numbers and then tables, as well as a bit of instructions, a short letter, the Epistle to Carpianus, that helps readers to read the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together as a single whole.
0: What is a paratext?
1: Now we're actually quite used to paratexts. The most common paratext in the context of biblical studies is probably the chapter and verse numbers that we use all the time. And while when I teach New Testament I have to explain that these things are actually not natural, not obvious, not necessary, that sometimes actually they divide up a thought into two different chapters when something is actually going right through. The interpretive work has gone into dividing up a text into particular sections. Yet, at the same time, we find them inescapably useful, and we use them all the time when we're doing biblical scholarship. Eusebius' system is very much like this.
0: So, how does the Eusebian apparatus work? How might one use them to read the Gospels?
1: The Eusebian apparatus is a system made out of three fundamental parts. First, there's a letter of instructions, Eusebius's letter to Carpianus. This tells the reader how the system works, and also what the purpose of the system is, namely to help you read four Gospels together rather than dividing them up to make some new mega-gospel like Tatian's Diatessaron. We'll come back to that. Then second, every Gospel is divided into sequential sections. And so Matthew, 355 sections, Mark, 233 sections, Luke, 342 sections, John, 232 sections
0: dear listener jeremiah is not looking at notes for that
1: so that's that's a lot of sections although we should know that's not as many sections as we have verses in modern divisions of those same gospel texts so eusebius is dividing the gospels up into relatively small units but they're not always tiny units some of these units are actually very small less than a verse in our modern system some of them are as much as a couple of chapters long, especially in John, which has these long blocks of material that are unique to John and there aren't parallels to in other gospel texts. The third piece of this system is a set of reference tables. That is, tables that connect sections in individual gospels to one another. And so, for example, Canon 1, um, Canon being the technical word for table here, is the material that is shared by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so, The four columns of the table will have a section number from Matthew, a section number from Mark, a section number from Luke, and a section number from John. And the things that are in parallel in the table are parallel passages, at least as Eusebius has decided what counts as a parallel. Likewise, the other canons, the other tables in this set of ten tables, map other relationships. And so, for example, especially for those of you who thought about gospel source criticism, Canon 5 is material shared by Matthew and Luke. In other words, material that we might just possibly call Q. Although, Eusebius's judgments about what might go in that table are a bit different than how many modern scholars have thought about Q. And this goes all the way down to Canon 10, which is actually four subtables. Material unique to Matthew, material u- unique to Mark, material unique to Luke, and of course, material unique to John. And so you see this has mapped different patterns of relationships and uses these tables to show you what material in any given gospel is parallel to material in other gospels.
0: Okay, Jeremiah, so I grab my uh, Codex Alexandrinus off the bookshelf and I flip open to the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, right? So I've got some nice Greek text in front of me and I look at the margins. What do I see there and what I'm, what is that supposed to make me do?
1: So let's look at Matthews. Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6, what we generally call the Lord's Prayer, starts in verse 9. Jesus says, therefore you pray thus, our Father in heaven, and so forth. What's interesting here is that Eusebius doesn't start a new section in Matthew 6, 9, with the beginning of what we call the Lord's Prayer. He starts a new section in verse 7, that is, with the start of the passage of discussion around the Lord's Prayer proper. But if you have your Nestle Island New Testament in front of you, you might look at the inside margin, the gutter where the book opens, and you'll see a little number 43 on top of a Roman numeral 5 or a V. What that tells you is that this is Matthew section 43 and that Eusebius has identified it as material in Canon 5. Canon 5, as you can find out by looking at those tables near the beginning of your. Greek New Testament, or the beginning of your manuscript, if you're so lucky as to be looking at a manuscript right now, Canon 5 is material shared by Matthew and Luke.
0: So the the bottom number, the the 5 on the bottom, is telling me to go flip to the front, the tables in the front, and find table number 5.
1: Yeah, so if we then flip to our canon tables, we find out that Matthew section 43 corresponds to Luke section 123. Now, if we flip to the Gospel of Luke and look for section 123 navigating by those numbers on the inside margin.
0: And this technology was used for centuries before there were chapter numbers or verse numbers as we think of them today. So this functioned partially somewhat like we use those.
1: And so if we find section 123 in Luke, we'll notice that it also is above a little Roman numeral 5. Because it also comes from Canon 5 which is Luke and Matthew in parallel. And this leads us to what in our modern chapter and verse numbers is Luke 11.1. Again, Jesus discusses with his disciples how prayer should work. And then starting in the middle of Luke 11.2, we get the text of the Lord's Prayer proper. And so what Eusebius' system here has done is it helps you navigate from within one gospel text using the canon tables to a different parallel gospel text. It's also worth noting what the sort of principle of division is for Eusebius. And I think this is a really important point that's often overlooked. Eusebius didn't divide the Gospels up into what he thought were narratives or parables or stories or sections. No, he first thought through what counted as a parallel, and then his section numbers, his divisions of the text, depend on his judgments about parallels. That means that sometimes if Eusebius thinks a very long chunk of Matthew, say, is parallel to a very long chunk of Luke, that there won't be any section breaks. Because Eusebius has mapped these two sections as parallel, and as long as the relationship of parallel continues, they'll say just one section. It also means that if there's a passage of unique material, even a very long passage of unique material, as happens a couple of times in John, Well, that very long passage of unique material will just be one section in Canon 10, that is the section, the canon for unique material. Eusebius' system is a system of parallels first and then of sections second, not a division of the Gospels into pericopes first that are then aligned. No, it's parallels first, sectioning second.
0: A system of chapter title headings, we call capituli, that is, labels for individual stories, would be developed in antiquity, at least by the 3rd century. So the system that we're familiar with did exist, but the Eusebian apparatus served a different purpose. So basically, the Eusebian apparatus is a series of numbers in the margin of your Gospels that point you to reference tables at the front of the text, which point you back to numbers in parallel Gospels what on earth would inspire someone like Eusebius to produce something like this?
1: So Eusebius is addressing a really fundamental question of gospel reading, a question that's important in modern scholarship, but also a question that generated a lot of scholarship and theological interest, and also real arguments in antiquity. Eusebius, like many other Christians of his day, thought that the church had four gospels. Not more, not less, but four gospels. But these four gospels overlap with one another. They're not entirely different. They're not entirely similar. They overlap in complicated ways. And the question is, well, how do you read these four gospels together as one corpus?
0: And Eusebius, of course, was not the first Christian to address this problem. We've talked about this on the podcast before. Marcion had one very elegant solution. Just pick one. Tatian had another. Compose one out of, out of four or more, by, and create a super gospel. Ammonius, who we know of primarily from Eusebius's letter to Carpianus, the very letter we're talking about, had a different solution. Can you tell me what that
1: was? So Ammonius of Alexandria created a different kind of megagospel. Unlike Tatian, who dissolves all four gospels and makes one sort of long single narrative, Ammonius instead keeps Matthew intact and rearranges the other three gospels, at least we think it's three, but um, Ammonius rearranges other gospel material along the narrative frame of Matthew. What does that mean? It means you can only read Matthew in order. Every other gospel is out of order. It no longer has a literary or narrative integrity of its own. It's just supplemental Matthew, extra Matthew material.
0: So I believe, and Jeremiah on his good days agrees with me, that Ammonius' composition was a columnar synopsis, that is vertical columns. So down the leftmost column, you have the Gospel of Matthew running, and then wherever a text agrees with Matthew to its right, you'd print that text in parallel. Eusebius is upset that Ammonius's work, and I would say also Tatian's work, breaks up the order of reading, the sequence, the, the, running narrative of, the running narrative of Mark, Luke, and John.
1: Yeah, only Matthew can be read in sequence. So Eusebius is addressing a problem that has already been addressed by a number of other readers and that... Readers today, for example, when I teach New Testament classes, continue to grapple with. What's the relationship between these four texts? How can we read them fruitfully together? Where are they similar? Where are they different? Eusebius is asking these really fundamental questions which mattered for both scholarly and ecclesial, churchly contexts in his day, and that continue to matter for readers throughout history and right up until the present.
0: Of course, the question of how do we read four Gospels in light of each other, What do we do when matthew and luke don't say exactly the same thing or push in opposite directions should we put both shepherds and wise men at the manger scene people keep asking these kinds of questions today these are still questions that occupy us today as we reflect theologically historically or literarily on the nature of the fourfold gospel exactly okay we turn now to macarthur's essay And this is a nice introduction, it's sort of a, it's a short, very short read that gives you the basics of what Eusebius' apparatus is, Um, but it also makes at least one really interesting intervention into scholarship on the Eusebian apparatus, and that is the argument that Eusebius is not simply trying to identify identical, historically identical, historically synchronic events between Gospels. That is, the most natural way to read this, and the way Scholarship had read this for a long time, and Scholarship continues to read this, if Eusebius takes you from one episode in the Gospel of Matthew and points you to a parallel episode in the Gospel of Luke, you just assume that he's saying these are the same events. And this, MacArthur argues compellingly, isn't true.
1: MacArthur, in this wonderfully short, just seven-page article, gives us an introduction to what the Eusebian app read- apparatus is and to how the apparatus works and here i would also just like to say we need more seven page articles (laughs) this article comes from the catholic biblical quarterly in 1965 from a section entitled miscellania biblica and in seven pages macarthur gives a very accessible introduction to what the system is how it works why it matters and then makes a very specific and innovative point by actually using the system to read the gospels more scholarship should be like this.
0: A lot of scholars before MacArthur and still writing today assume that when they open up to a page in Matthew and the Eusebian apparatus points them to a parallel episode in the Gospel of Luke, that Eusebius is claiming these two are the same episode. These, these are the same historical events in the life of Jesus. MacArthur gives us some reasons for thinking this is not the case. Why should we be skeptical of this interpretation of Eusebius, Jeremiah?
1: So what MacArthur says is that we have been misled by our tools and by our modern conversations, specifically our conversations about the historical Jesus. What he says on page 254 of this article is, quote, Our modern interest in harmonies or synopses has led too quickly to the assumption that Eusebius was concerned to provide his contemporaries with the information necessary for this purpose. Uh, th- by this purpose, he means... The identifying of alternate versions of the same incident. This, MacArthur shows, just isn't what Eusebius was up to.
0: One easy to describe example. Luke 5, there is this miraculous catch of fish where Jesus calls his disciples. uh, And this is paralleled by Eusebius with an episode that happens after Jesus' resurrection in the Gospel of John. If you open to the story in the Gospel of Luke, it'll point you to Canon 9, which is material that's parallel between Luke and John. And you flip there and it'll point you to the relevant story in John. But MacArthur very plausibly argues, it cannot be that Eusebius thought these were the same events. One happens at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, one happens after Jesus's death and resurrection. So Eusebius must be doing something other than just identifying two versions of the same
1: incident. Another example is the number of Passovers. Now, in John there are three different Passovers. Now, the synoptics only have one mentioned Passover. John has three. So what does Eusebius do with this? He doesn't do what we might think he should. He doesn't pick one Passover to be the Johannine equivalent to the single synoptic Passover. No, he does something that doesn't make any sense if what he's trying to do is create a chronological reconstruction of Jesus's life. He does what I in my book have called a multiple juxtaposition. He juxtaposes all three Johannine passovers with the synoptic Passover. This means that all of the evidence is provided to you as the reader to think through where Passovers show up in these gospels. It also means that Eusebius declines to give you the answer. He's not making an argument about the historical reconstruction of which johannine passover corresponds to the synoptic one nor is he making a claim that all three of these johannine passovers are actually the same passover no he's collecting a pattern of data and offering it to you as the reader
0: one more example of eusebius's parallels not identifying two parallels as the same incident is in john 7 A group of Judeans says to Jesus, has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? Jesus can't be the Messiah, they're saying, because the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. And for people who think John knows the synoptics like me, I think that's dramatic irony, uh, because John knows that Jesus, in fact, did come from Bethlehem. Nevertheless, there is no parallel to this story in the synoptic gospels. What Eusebius does is not put this in the unique to John category, but points his readers back to the nativities of Matthew and Luke, where you can find out that Jesus does, in fact, come from Bethlehem. Eusebius is pointing his readers towards interpretively useful information, not identifying parallel passages as, in fact, same events. Jeremiah, where do you think this article missteps?
1: First, I'll say, I really think this is a great article in a lot of ways. And I'm particularly influenced by and appreciative of the cre- the way it attends to the creative and theologically productive ways that Eusebius connects material that isn't obviously the same. But I do think there are two places where the article really leaves us with space to keep thinking. One of these is that MacArthur doesn't really attend to the technological aspects of how the Eusebian system works, how readers would have encountered the use of column and row tables, how readers would have encountered this use of sectioning. I also have a more specific criticism, namely that sometimes the things that MacArthur in the final bit of his essay describes as Eusebius' mistakes, I'm not so sure are mistakes. Certainly, Eusebius might make mistakes. People make mistakes, that's normal. But the things he describes as Eusebius making mistakes seem to me far more likely to be decisions that Eusebius made that MacArthur happens not to agree with.
0: So for instance, at one place Eusebius takes a story where Matthew and Luke are very similar to each other and he splits the story in two in Matthew but leaves the Lucan section whole. This is one of Eusebius's mistakes according to MacArthur.
1: What seems to be missing from MacArthur's reading of the passage here is that this incredibly complex set of multiple juxtapositions. Let's Eusebius map a whole network of different connections. The Eusebian system doesn't give you a way to just make a parallel between say passage A in John and passage B in John. The only way you can make parallels between things in the same gospel is to put all to put multiple different passages in one gospel in parallel with the same verse or section in a different gospel. Eusebius does this quite frequently. For example, all of the Johannine I am sayings. And that's also what we see here. Eusebius's decision not to break this one verse in Luke up into two halves lets that united verse serve as a fulcrum for multiple sets of parallels between John and Matthew and also Luke. And Leaving that Lucan verse intact lets him make those complicated connections.
0: Right, and this actually answers one of MacArthur's other criticisms, which MacArthur says, there's nothing in the Eusebian apparatus that lets you point to parallels within a gospel. So Jeremiah brought up the I Am sayings. One might think of the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 that are found in the same gospel. Very neat parallel stories. MacArthur claims that there's nothing in the Eusebian apparatus to point out that there's a parallel within the same gospel. And Jeremiah is suggesting that this isn't true. That actually, by paralleling both events in the same gospel to another event in a different gospel, the the apparatus actually allows you to find parallels even within a single gospel.
1: Yet another example here where MacArthur points out what he thinks might be an error, but I actually think is a genius move on Eusebius' part, is what to do with the anointing. So all four... Canonical Gospels have a story where Jesus is anointed. There are differences between all four of these narratives, but the most strikingly divergent example is the one in Luke. Matthew and Mark are incredibly close in their anointing stories. John is reasonably close as well. Luke is both much earlier in its Gospel narrative than the corresponding material in Matthew, Mark, and John, and is also just different in a lot of other ways. Eusebius does something that he doesn't do anywhere else he assigns the material in john 12 2 to 8 to two different canons that is he assigns the anointing in john to canon 1 with parallels in matthew mark luke and course john he also assigns it to a set of parallels in canon 4 matthew mark and john no luke hmm. why does he do this it's a way of mapping this really complicated situation of similarity and difference. there are anointings in all four gospels and in some ways they are similar. And also in other ways, Luke is an outlier and doesn't quite fit. And so, UCBS maps both the overarching similarity and also the closer correspondence between Matthew, Mark, and John and the rather less similar state of Luke. One could say that Eusebius made a mistake here, but the more obvious conclusion is that Eusebius is using his system creatively to flag both similarity and difference.
0: So between MacArthur and your own scholarship, uh, what other scholarship should we think about on the Eusebian apparatus?
1: MacArthur is sort of the foundational introduction in English. His 1965 article sets up much of the subsequent conversation that takes place in anglophone scholarship but we actually should go back a bit further in german scholarship especially so starting in 1908 eberhard nesla wrote this very hard to track down but insightful article about the use of the eusebian apparatus and the different ways it appears in editions of the new testament that article is the rationale for why it is that your Nestle-Allen Greek New Testament has the Eusebian apparatus at all. That article is called the, um, called the Evangelion Synopsa, and it was published in 1908 in the Neue Kirchliche Zeitschrift. Somewhat later than Nestle, another really important anchor point in the study of the Eusebian apparatus is the work of Carl Nordenfalk. Carl Nordenfalk wrote an important book in 1938 on the art historical reception of the Eusebian gospel canons. But in that work, he was already also thinking about how these are not just beautifully decorated tables in manuscripts, but also systems that people use to read with. And Norenfeld later in his career contributed several more incredibly insightful pieces to the study of how readers encountered the Eusebian apparatus. More recently, there's been sort of a small flowering of research on the Eusebian apparatus as part of our broader turn in the field of biblical studies and in the study of early Christianity more broadly toward manuscripts, toward materiality, and toward reading culture. Particularly important here is the work of Anthony Grafton and Megan Hale Williams in their 2006 book, Christianity and the Transformation of the Book. Grafton-Williams and are seeking to understand the transformations that took place in early Christian book culture with the rise of the codex. That is, the rise of the book with a cover and pages as opposed to a book roll or a scroll. It seems to me, actually, that Grafton and Williams give too much credit to the codex on its own terms as the reason for innovations in Christian reading. There are other historical, cultural, and technological factors at play. But nonetheless, they sort of evoked... A broader surge of interest in early Christian book culture and reading practices and one of the chapters in their book focuses on the work of Eusebius including a section on the gospel apparatus. Even more recently there has been an important book by Matthew Crawford.
0: So I've known Professor Dr. Coogan since before he was either professor at or doctor and when you were dedicating years of your life to one research project on which your doctoral degree will depend, and upon the publication of which your subsequent career will depend. Your greatest fear is perhaps that another scholar, a senior scholar ahead of you perhaps, would publish on the exact same topic at the exact same time, or worse, slightly before you. And there is an outstanding scholar who Jeremiah and I both hold in high regard, who published in Oxford University Press only a few years ago a work titled the eusebian canon tables and i have to imagine jeremiah when you learned that this work was forthcoming that wasn't your best day
1: matt is an incredibly generous and collegial scholar and i've appreciated his insights and encouragement of my work so matt's book is a different take on how Eusebius's project works than what I tried to do in my book and also is a different sort of project in in large part than what MacArthur does in his essay. Matt does two things. In the first half he tries to locate Eusebius's project in the context of Alexandrian scholarship, that is the stream of scholarship going back to especially Aristarchus of Samothrace and the classic Homeric scholarship of the third and then second centuries BCE by way of origin Crawford seeks to locate Eusebius's project in that long stream of what's fundamentally text criticism.
0: And there's an outstanding essay in there on Ammonius's work, which we discussed towards the beginning of this episode, that I would commend to you.
1: And then Matt Crawford turns in the second half of the book to think about a couple of examples of the reception of the Eusebian apparatus. He focuses on Augustine of Hippos, on the harmony of the evangelists, on how the apparatus is revised in the Syriac Peshitta Gospels, on the use of the apparatus in the scholarship of Hiberno-Latin, that is Irish, um, scholars in the early medieval period. And then finally, on the tradition of Armenian commentaries on the Eusebian canons and on their decoration. It's a really great book. My book builds on and also diverges from Matt's work in two important ways. So first of all, Matt approaches Eusebius' project as a scholarly project as late ancient reception that's sort of distinct from earlier gospel writing, earlier gospel production. And I think that we need to draw a stronger line of continuity between Eusebius's project of reading and rewriting gospels and earlier gospel reading and rewriting. Eusebius isn't just part of this late ancient information technological turn, although he is a scholar doing scholarly things. He's also someone who's participating in a history of reading and rewriting gospels that we can trace back to and even before him, to the way that, say, Luke is rereading and rewriting his gospel sources. And so the first way in which my project sort of builds on but also diverges from Matt's project is that I show how Eusebius is part of a history of gospel writing, this trajectory of reading and rewriting and reconfiguring gospel texts. Mm -hmm. There's a second way also in which I build on and diverge from Crawford's project. Crawford focuses on the Eusebian apparatus as scholarship, and so he focuses on what we might call exegetical use of the apparatus. How did people use the Eusebian apparatus, especially in these four specific contexts Augustine, the Syriac Meshida, Hiberno Latin monks, and then Armenian Gospel commentary? How did people interpret or engage in exegesis of the Gospels using the Eusebian apparatus? He's certainly right to point this out. People engaged in the scholarly reading of the Gospels were using Eusebius's project for exegesis, for commentary writing, and for homiletics. And yet, there are also a wide range of other ways in which Eusebius makes it possible to read the Gospels differently, not just in interpretive terms, but also in practical and indeed physical terms. How did people find their way around a Gospel book? How did people decide what they were going to read in liturgy and navigate to what they were going to read in liturgy? how did people engage in textual criticism, and so forth. These are also part of the big history of how the Eusebian apparatus reshapes the possibilities of gospel reading. And so my project tries to take a wider angle lens on what Eusebius made it possible for readers of the gospels to do.
0: And that brings us to Jeremiah's 2022 work, Eusebius the Evangelist, rewriting the fourfold gospel in late antiquity, which I have been thoroughly enjoying reading through. And you've already heard in Jeremiah's description how he's going to be casting Eusebius as someone who reworked the gospel, who is continuing in the tradition of, the, of evangelists taking gospel source material and repackaging this material for readers in a new way. Jeremiah starts this discussion in what you might think of as an unexpected place. Astronomical tables, the work of Ptolemy, an ancient scientist. Jeremiah, what does this have to do with anything?
1: So the central claim is that Eusebius is employing novel technologies to rewrite the Gospels in creative ways, to make it possible to read the Gospels differently. And one of the ideas underlying that claim is that technologies aren't just about what it's technically possible to do, but about what it's easy, convenient, and obvious to do. And so what I show is that Eusebius uses the, at that time, very unusual, novel, and specialized technology of the column and row table in order to make it possible and, indeed, easy and obvious to read the Gospels the way that Eusebius wants us to. Eusebius takes this technology, the column and row table, and he deploys it as a way of structuring information, as a way of helping the reader quickly and efficiently find out what passages in Gospel A, say Matthew, parallel different passages in, say, Gospel B. Technology is a central part of this narrative. And so what I show is how Eusebius is not just using technologies in creative ways, but he's actually using quite unusual technologies that have particular affordances, that make particular kinds of use possible, and then uses these to sort of build into the Gospel book, the physical book that people hold in their hands, particular possibilities of reading. It's not like Eusebius was the first person to compare passages in Matthew and John or Mark and Luke. Other readers had done this. Origen in particular seems to have done this a lot and Tatian as well. What Eusebius does is make, he makes it easy and obvious to do this. It's a built-in function of the gospel book. And of course the thing is it's Eusebius's ideas about what passages you should read with what other passages. It's Eusebius's judgments about gospel reading that are built into the gospel book as the obvious and easy way of reading the gospels. Eusebius has reconfigured the possibilities of reading the gospel book.
0: Another one of Jeremiah's major contributions is showing us these creative juxtapositions, um, the multiple juxtapositions Jeremiah was already talking about, places where Eusebius has created non-obvious parallels or parallels that work in non-obvious ways to inform, structure, frame, our reading of the Gospels. Jeremiah, can you give us an example?
1: Eusebius's project is just shot through with these creative juxtapositions. In fact, before getting to specific examples, it's worth noting that every single juxtaposition in Canon 9, every single time that Eusebius compares material in the pattern, the cluster of John and Luke, every single time it's a multiple juxtaposition. Eusebius is basically doing just sort of creative and unexpected things when it comes to reading John and Luke together. Wow. And so creative reading is just fundamental to the Eusebian project. And quite a few examples have been noted by various scholars before. In fact, John William Bergen, the (laughs) 19th century dean of Chichester Cathedral, who has been discussed on this podcast before, in this big long book on the longer ending of Mark, arguing for its authenticity, among other things, complains about Eusebius's apparatus and notes how Eusebius seems to, in Bergen's terms, not be a very insightful gospel reader. He keeps comparing stuff that's not the same stuff.
0: That's episode 20, John Bergen, the last 12 verses of Mark.
1: And so these aren't new observations, many of them. Some of the ones I argue for are. But what I do try to do is bring these together in order to show the pervasive way in which Eusebius is engaged in creatively re-reading the Gospels together, connecting material not just in terms of things that might be temporally the same, synchronic narratives, that, but also connecting things that are similar in terms of thematic elements, theological arguments in terms of particular striking wording, and in terms of narrative structure. So again, the, the fishing example from John uh, from John 21 and Luke 5 is a great example here.
0: So Jeremiah, give us a specific example.
1: So here's one of my favorite examples, one that I actually don't think has been noted by other scholars before. You see, this juxtaposes the breakfast of fish that Jesus has in Galilee with his disciples in John 21, with the supper of fish that he has in Jerusalem after the resurrection in Luke. These are clearly different stories. Different people are there. They're in different places, Jerusalem versus Galilee. Jesus eats different things. One of them is breakfast and the other one is dinner. One of them is outside, one of them is inside. These are clearly not the same story. Clearly, it's not about the identical narrative. It's not about trying to reconstruct the same historical event. So here we see two things. First, Eusebius has aligned material that is clearly divergent in narrative terms. Time, place, people, actions. More importantly, second, Eusebius is doing something creative here. He's bringing different parts of the sort of big gospel constellation of texts. He's, br- he's drawing together Luke's and John's post-resurrection appearances and weaving them thematically and theologically together.
0: Both you and Matthew Crawford focus not only on the work of Eusebius himself, but also its reception by later readers, by later scribes and interpreters. Uh, tell us a little bit about the reception of Eusebius' apparatus.
1: So first, it's important to emphasize just how big the reception footprint of the Eusebian gospel apparatus is. It appears in truly over 10,000 manuscripts from the 4th century right up until the 20th century. While in Europe, it largely fades out of use when print Bibles come in and the conventions of the Bible on the page change with print. This isn't true in other contexts. And so in my work, I looked at, for example, Syriac, Armenian, and Ethiopic gospel manuscripts from the 20th century that continue to include and that show the marks of readers still continuing to use Eusebius' system for reading the gospels. So it has this enormous footprint from the 4th century right up until our own day, um, shaping how readers in every language that the gospels were translated into in the first 15 centuries of their existence or so Also, the Eusebian apparatus came with. It's one of the most widely transmitted texts of the pre-modern world. and It also continues to shape how readers use the Gospels. So it gets used for commentary and gets transformed in a handful of particular contexts that Crawford focuses on. It also gets used for things like liturgy, for finding your way about and finding and knowing what it is you're supposed to read from the Gospel on a Sunday in a number of different liturgical traditions. It gets used as the basic way of finding your way about a gospel book. The canons, the decorated tables at the beginning of a manuscript, are used as sites of prayer and meditation on the nature of scripture as part of spiritual exercises for preparing to enter into and read the gospel text. So this UCBN system, in thousands and thousands of manuscripts, in more than a dozen languages, over the course of now... 1,500 years and counting, shaped how people encountered the Gospels on the page.
0: Let me then conclude with a very New Testament scholar question. How does Eusebius want us to read the Gospels?
1: Eusebius invites us to read the Gospels by paying attention to their literary structure. He invites us to pay attention to not just the historical questions, is this that, but how can I read these things together? What things are similar? How can I pay attention to the structure of story, to the themes, to the echoes of language? Eusebius invites us to be more thoughtful literary readers of gospel texts.
0: Well, Jeremiah, I always enjoy having you on here. It's great to have a conversation with or without microphones in front of us. I hope we can have you back on sometime soon.
1: No, thanks, thanks for having me on, this was fun.